The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Dragons Made to Order, and we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It is a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirod. This week, we bring you DJ Butler's discussion with Dave Barra about Trinity's Children. The novel is a sequel to Trinity, which we discussed previously on the podcast. Trinity's Children follows the saga of Admiral Jared Clement, though now new readers should have no trouble jumping in. But first, the news. Head over to Bain.com and check out this month's free short story, Fire Breathing Dragon by Dan Cobalt, which is set in his Build-A-Dragon sequence of near-future techno-thrillers that follows researcher Noah Parker and his work at Reptilian Corp, a biotech firm that has created living, breathing dragons. There are two novels in the series out now, Domesticating Dragons and Deploying Dragons. Noah Parker has made a name for himself designing genetically engineered dragons for Reptilian Corp. Of course, most of his day is writing genetic code for one of the many standard model dragons that his company produces. But every now and then, he gets a crack at creating something custom for a high-paying customer. Always a challenge, these custom jobs help break up the day-to-day -day of his job. Hey, even creating dragons can get boring if you do it long enough. But when an order for a fire-breathing dragon crosses his desk, a heretofore unheard-of request, Noah Parker will have to use all his skills to get the job done. And while you're on the site, take a look at this month's fictional nonfiction essay, Origins of the West African Launcher from the TCG Files by Andy Presby, a look at what it might take to build a space elevator to Earth orbit as seen in Joel Presby's The Debare Snake Launcher. In the novel, the race is on to build the world's first space elevator, but creating such an engineering miracle is no easy task. While the novel is not short on technical detail, we thought readers might be interested in a closer look at what it might really take to build a space elevator. And that's it for the news. Hi, welcome. This is uh, DJ Dave Butler. I'm here with Dave Barra to talk about his new novel. Welcome, Dave. Trinity's Children. Uh, it is out now in trade paperback and all your favorite ebook formats, DRM free yep. when you buy them at uh, Bain.com, of course, as always. Right. Uh, Dave's previous novels include the Lightship Chronicles series from Daw Books, including Impulse, Starbound, and Defiant. Mm -hmm. uh, his other works uh, include Void Ship, uh, St. Cochran's World, Speed Wing, and short story contributions to uh, various anthologies. Uh, and of course, the, uh, the first book in the series we're talking about today, which was Trinity, which came out in uh, October uh, of, uh, of last year, uh, I guess yeah. 13 months ago. Uh, Dave grew up as a fan of the Gemini and Apollo space programs and dreamed of being an astronaut one day. Since that time, he has restricted his journeys into space to the written word. He lives in the Pacific Northwest. Dave, 
Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. Thank you, Dave. I really appreciate it. I appreciate being here, and I enjoy uh, enjoy the time we spend together on this. So. You, you know, I thought about being an astronaut as a kid too, but um, so I was very disappointed <laughs> when. Uh, so we haven't met in person, so you don't know this. Right. But I'm quite tall. I'm six foot seven. And, oh wow! Yeah. Wow. So uh, I was. I crossed. Let's see. I think I was in the seventh grade when I exceeded six foot two, which I, I don't know if this was true, even <laughs> in, or if it's still true, but someone right. had told me that that was like the tallest you could be to be an Air Force pilot. And therefore, that was the cap on astronaut height was Man. six foot two. And I they felt cheated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing with, uh, with uh, jockeys and uh, race car drivers, too. I think they tend to, to be. Right smaller on the smaller size so uh it depends on how good you are if you're really super good you can be taller but otherwise i don't, I don't think yeah so. yeah i think i would have been wiped out for being a jockey in like fifth grade i think yeah that's the point yeah. Said, Ooh. yeah sounds like it um but yeah the astronaut thing man i i really wanted to be an astronaut when i was a kid and uh you know we just didn't just i don't know life never kind of took me that way and all that stuff. It was like a, it was like a childhood dream that I didn't think would ever happen. Um, kind of like writing. And then you know, I kept writing and one day I'm now I'm kind of a spacefaring guy in space and books. So it's good. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. That's, that's, that's not bad. So, um, so uh, excited to be here and talk about uh, Trinity's children, um, right. which uh, is it fair to characterize that as sort of hard science fiction? It's space adventures. Would you call it space opera? What would you what would you describe? I, you know, I don't know. When I write, I just write what I think to me is is this the kind of science fiction I, I enjoy, right? So I'm not categorizing it. Um, I know a friend of mine, uh, a guy who wrote a review in Analog, talked about it being between space opera and between uh, military science fiction I think it has elements of both of those things but I don't think it's beholden to any any one uh area is it hard science fiction it's more hard than other stuff that I've written but I wouldn't call myself a hard SF writer um so I have to say it's 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 got some scientific background in it that's certainly uh, can be can be talked about as being solid and all that stuff, but it's not, it's not really any one of those categories. It's a, it's a good science fiction read. If you're looking for a good science fiction book, I think it fits that, that category. I think it is fast and it's entertaining and uh, hopefully people will, will like it no matter which category they think it fits in. So, yeah, no, I like that. Yeah. Uh, in terms of, um, uh, I guess, I guess the reason why I would ask the question or sort of in, in kind of setting the stage for the kind of science fiction this is a little bit, the, um, you know, where, where we're at in the setting is, is right at the moment at which a working Alcubierre drive makes faster than light travel possible, right? That's right. Essentially, one. yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, there are energy weapons, but also there are sequences involving, you know, masses of ball bearings uh, being fired at the yeah. ships and stuff, right? So it has, it has some of that kind of firefly feel where it's spaceships and it's ships we don't have now, but it's not warp 10, full speed ahead, Mr. Right. Sulu, right. 
uh, dilithium crystals kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, really, in this in this universe, in in the in both books, we're dealing just with the five suns, which is a set of stars fairly close to Earth, but it's really the only human colony that has succeeded. So, five hundred years from now, we're basically there's two star systems, Earth and the five suns. And they don't talk because of the distances and the time involved. And suddenly then we have the breakthrough of the Alcubierre type drive that uh, uh, gives them the opportunity to travel faster than light, to communicate faster than by, you know, faster than light, I guess you would say. And it, and it just sort of, it doesn't get heavily into the technology as much as it is about, about the, the stories and the characters and how they can be played out in, the, in that's scenario those scenarios so yeah yeah so okay so let's explore this uh background a little bit so um <clears throat> well actually so background of the back let's talk about our main character this is a story about characters and adventures let's talk about our main character jared clement tell right. us about jared clement what kind of guy is he what's his what's his background coming into trinity the the original story well coming into that he was originally just um, an old, well, he's not really retired, but he's a ship captain. He's a pilot. Um, he's a guy who's worked for his, for himself for a while, uh, about, about a decade since the, the war ended. It was a civil war between the Rim Confederation, a group of um, very poor planets against uh, some more powerful central sort of planets. And in that time he sort of had this record of being reliable a record of being you know um, a good person to do business with but he wasn't really uh anymore he was laying low trying to downplay the history of what had happened in the war and um yet everybody kind of knew who he was um not like general lee maybe but like somebody from the the south in the civil war there are, are plenty of people i'm sure that had those kinds of reputations uh, after the war. And, and so he was kind of there hanging out and he gets an opportunity. And that opportunity comes to him in the form of, uh, of Tanisha, Tanitha Yan, who is uh, an, an officer with the Five Sons Navy. And she makes a proposal to him that he come and listen to the commander of a, of a distant star base. And, um, that she thinks he will find that opportunity uh, uh, irresistible. And he does actually. And so he, he basically embarks on the path with these people again, the five sons people who he had, he had served in their Navy. He had become a rebel. When the re revolution was, de was defeated, he sort of became on his own, um, an individual pilot. And, you know, now he's all the way back to working for the five sons again. So uh, interesting group of interesting bit of back and forth on how he got there, where he's going, um, where do his loyalties really lie? And ultimately, I think he's a guy whose loyalties lie with his family, with his friends, uh, with the people that he loves in the world that he came from, which was, is poor. No, no question it's poor, but he wants to help to try to solve their problems by um, opening up exploration to this system called Trinity, which is a, uh, a dwarf, a uh, red dwarf star system with seven planets, three of which are habitable. 
and uh, very much like the Trappist-1 star system that we talked about, that's been talked about for a number of years. And that's kind of where the origin of the idea came out. And then Clement himself is just someone who's uh, very motivated to help not only his family, but his friends, and he's very loyal to the people who have come before him. So in a lot of ways, he's a he's kind of a hero's hero who devolves a bit into uh, a bit of self-pity and drinking, and yet he has the edges of uh, military training around him that still guides his life, and he still has those um, aspects of his life where he's able to um, use that stuff as his advantage over time. Um, I actually wrote a, a story called um, Shattered Trust, which appeared on the Bain.com website. And it's actually, if you read Trinity at the beginning, there's a, a, a prequel uh, prologue that takes place essentially at the end of the war. And then it, it jumps into the regular part of the novel. A shattered trust takes place between the end of the prologue and the actual beginning of the novel of Trinity. It fills in about a year, year and a half of time there. And in that time, you find out a little bit more about about um, Clement, about what he's about, and uh, the kinds of face the kinds of issues he's going to be facing uh, in his own life in the future, for sure. So, yeah. yeah. So, just just to um, just to add just a, a hair of clarity, like that the the Rim Confederation versus the Central Planet. That's all within a single star system. That's all within the five. Stars. Yeah. Well, the five suns is actually a grouping of stars that are that are close together. Um, so they're all within um, they're all within uh, travel times that that you could you know you can live with. They're um, separated by maybe just a couple of light years. A couple of there's a group of these five stars, and they so they so in in, in the interaction between them, there is the central sort of planets, the two controlling main planets are the ones that uh, sort of control the political discourse, they're the richest planets, they're the ones that have most, most resources, they kind of control everything. And the rim is kind of a, uh, an out there in the distance kind of group that uh, when, when they think about it now, they look at it and say, well, those planets should never have been colonized, but uh, but they were, and now people live there, and so everyone has to deal with them and their problems as well. So. Yeah. And and so, what are the five suns? Is, is there, are they in any communication with Earth at all, or is it all sort of like I send a message and I get an answer in twenty years? Yes, it's very much it's very much like that. Very rare um, communication is very rare with those other with with Earth and and the five suns. The five suns. Um, Star systems each have planets. Some of them have multiple habitable planets. Some of those were terraformed, but they are able to um, communicate with, with each other better than they are able to communicate with Earth, which like you said, takes years. Whereas uh, the ships they have can accelerate up to light speed. I don't think I get into that too much, but they can get into um, accelerate at least up to light speed and get where they're going, um, you know, in a fairly swift amount of time. So it's like if Alpha Centauri is being what, about four point, Proxima is about 4.3 light years from Earth. And let's just say in, in this world, it's more like they're about 
two to two and a half light years away at, at the most extreme. So it's, it's mm. a smaller group. And it's also technologically more advanced than what we have today. So, yeah. So, um, all right. So, so book one, Trinity, you know, right. uh, basically the five sons technologists, the Navy engineers have come up right. with the, they've got a single ship that at least right. they know about, right? A that, prototype, uh, yes. Yeah, a prototype ship that'll, that'll exceed uh, light speed. Um, and, uh, and so Clement is sent to go, or, or he's, he's recruited, right? right. Uh, come back uh, and, uh, and, and, and go explore this trinity, this nearby red dwarf system. Right. Um, one of the things he does, he goes and recruits uh, his former crew, right? So there's this kind of, yeah. there's this kind of sense of like, you know, if the Enterprise lost and was decommissioned and 10 years later, you know, Kirk kind of pulling his life together. Right. Uh, goes and finds Scotty and, and others. Um, so who are some of the principal members of the, his command team that he's recruiting? Who, who, who is around him? Well, the people that are around him have all been people he served with. Um, I think the main guy, the main genius, if you will, the engineer is a man named uh, uh, Hassan Nobley. And he's, you know, he's a friend. He's a guy that cuts through the bullshit. He's a guy who will call Clement on any, any area, in any area where he seems like uh, he's, he's pushing too far or too fast. He'll tell him, hey, you know, you, you can do that. I can't, I can't do this. I can't do that. I'm not a miracle worker captain, et cetera, et cetera. So he's a, he's a main character. Um, the others are uh, uh, Amika Ori, who is a pilot. Um, her husband, his name is Ivan Massif. He's Russian. Um, he's a very good um, navigator. So they have these, these skills. They also eat uh, Yan, the character of Yan, ends up, ends up joining them on the first mission um, in, uh, on Tri in Trinity. And um, that small group is then supplemented by some technicians and local people um, that he that were basically picked for the for the crew by uh, Alara Devor, who's the um, main villain in in the first book. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So the, that's the main core of people around him, and those are the people he trusts. And those are the people who he relies on to get him in and out of uh, critical situations. And Yan is always there as the foil. She's the one who's there questioning whether what he's doing is the right thing to do or putting him in the right direction. Um, so she's just conscious, conscience in a lot of ways. And that function, I think, is pretty important in storytelling, especially science fiction storytelling. So. Yeah. I like I like how you start with this on Nobu first. He's he's very he's a key character in the first uh, book. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things uh, that uh, you know the the Trinity is the name of the ship, and right. it's sort it's a it's a gunship. It's not an elegant flyer. It's it's uh, right. It's it's, it's uh, like it's a platform for guns is what it is. Right. Really. Right. We just had this drive attached to it. Right. Um, one of the things that that nobly does, and this is all book one stuff, is uh, hey, we've got this prototype, never before seen engine. 
turns out there are ways to turn this into a not very reliable, potentially self-destructive, <laughs> but pretty powerful weapon. If we, yep. If we limit ourselves to the number of sh shots we take, right? Right. Um, and that's kind of part of the story, the adventure book one. You're right. Yes. Elana DeVore is, is, turns out to be the baddie. Uh, and um, and uh, so uh, actually, let's talk a little about book one then. So, so, we, so we go and we see Trinity. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the things hap that happens is we see that it's, it's inhabited already by humans or Boy, close so enough to humans, humans right, uh, right. Who, who lives on trinity and and uh what's going on with them it, it's you know what are the kind of mysteries involved well the natives that live on trinity seem like very simple people um but as they sort of explore a bit more and interact with the natives they discover that there's a lot of buried if you will buried technology that, that at some point this was a, a lot more high, highly technically advanced civilization than it is currently. And so interacting with them allows them to sort of say, hey, these, these people were here first and, and they were unexpected, unexpectedly, we find them and unexpectedly, they appear to be pretty human. And that's kind of a concept I've always, um, I've been dealing with quite a bit in my, in my in my books. And that is that, you know, what if we go out there and we find extraterrestrials, but they're extraterrestrial humans? What do we do in those situations? Or how do we deal with it? Do we have protocols? Do we think about it. What are we going to do about it? And I don't think that anybody was expecting there to be a habitable planets with population of natives. So when they first discover that, it really throws them off, throws off Clement. Um, but as they discover in book two, the civilization is far more advanced than, than they thought it was, it was going to be. And it ends up being a, a third sort of player between the, um, what we call the Solar League, which is the Earth systems, mm -hmm. and the Earth system, and uh, the five suns. It becomes sort of a third, third player in, if the, in the game. And um, it's, it's interesting, I think, that that they teach us a little bit about, you know, about colonialism and about how maybe we, um, maybe not all colonialism is necessarily a good thing, but what it does do is it teaches us that, that teaches them, Clement and the, and the characters, that they have to consider that, consider that and the impacts of those on those people before they take uh, uh, any steps that could harm them. So a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, they see, they seem, especially as we meet them in book one, they seem like a very, it's so, almost like an Edenic kind of, like they, a very simple existence and they seem very innocent. Right. Uh, um, they, that gets some real nuance in book two. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, the, the tech technologies that they're really working with. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, is when we, when they go there, um initially in in trinity they found they find a, a structure like an old cave-like structure that's physically or it's it's been made by someone and um they figure out okay so this was here before but when was it here before who could have put this 
on this planet and everything's kind of built to a human specification, if you will. So those things open up more questions for them. And those are questions that in the, in that book in Trinity, I decided, well, we decided that aside because I, I want to explore that more when I get to the second book. And that's pretty much what I do with, with Trinity's children is we explore that a lot more. Um, we, run, we have a recurring character, um, which we call, I call, who I call Mary, um, which is again, sort of a play on the idea of Mary, Jesus's mother and all that kind of thing. She's kind of a, a mother of their generation. Um, in many ways. And, and so um, this interaction and this discovery leads them to make more choices down the road that maybe they weren't planning on when they initially arrived. And, and in Trinity's Children, it's more about, um, are we gonna really take over these worlds? Are we going to colonize them? Are we going to make these people subservient to us in some ways because we know that always happens or are we going to work with them and eventually they're able to sort of get through those crises and um and determine what the best choices are for everybody and i think that's important yeah so um okay so speaking of crisis as as trinity's children opens uh Mm -hmm. clement is visiting his parents on the farm yeah, uh, out in one of the rim planets, right? Yeah, he's he's on um, he's on uh, Seda, which is um, his home world, or and where his family is from, where they've been for a couple of generations, and it's a farm that's uh, been slowly dying for a number of years, and uh, he does try to convince them, his parents, to uh, join them on the uh, on the journey to to the new worlds, to Trinity, and start mm-hmm. over again. Yeah, so the so the so a couple things about this. So first of all, he's not alone, right? He's visiting nope. his parents and who's right. with him and why. Well, his mother and father, and they're with him primarily to they they agree to join this exploration colony. This this um uh, what's the word I used during the during the in the book? Um it's sort of a migration colony, if you will. And so about 30,000 people end up uh, going from um, his world, Seda, it's the first transition where they're going to go to the new world uh, on, on, in Trinity, on Trinity. And um, they're with him and they're there. I think they constantly remind him of where he came from, what his upbringing was, what, his, what he's doing um, when he's making decisions. Is he making positive decisions or negative decisions for people around him? And although they don't play a deep role in, in the final outcome um, of the story, they do play, they do are, they are there, there when he's trying to make decisions and when he's trying to balance things out and he realizes, okay, if I do this, will this, how will this affect them? How will this affect the natives? How will this affect the future that I'm trying to build here? So that's the function I think that, that they have um, for him yeah now what's now what's necess- that's a big migration what's necessitating a mass migration of people from seda to the trinity world well the basic the basic necessity is the fact that seda is um is starving the colonies are colonies is dying uh, most of the people now live just in one single city 
um, in the center. Their, their family lives a little bit off of that and they still have enough food to get around, but not to go around, but not much. And so people are leaving at an alarming rate. That's part of what I talked about in, in Trinity is there's sort of a cascading failure uh, event that's going on where as the Trinity or as the um, Rim Confederation worlds uh, face catastrophe, as they die out, the people migrate to where they can get food and places to live. And so they move to the next system, but the next system isn't that strong either. So that system then gets overturned. And then they, they move on to the next planetary system. And when they get to there, that causes the system to be over, overburdened. So a lot of it's about how the populations of these of the, the five suns worlds um, are slowly being broken down. They're not, they're not resource rich. These planets are not like Earth. They're, they're, um, they do have resources, but they're not like uh, super rich planets or anything. And so that's why when they find the Trinity worlds, which are extremely rich in resources. That's why they're so excited about the prospect of colonizing, colonizing them. So the cascade failure event um, is what leads them to say, okay, we can take them out of this world, out of, out of the rim and over to Trinity. We can stop this cascading failure event from happening and we can save both the five sun civilization and build a new civilization in the Trinity yeah and that that puts some interesting kind of co color on this whole colonization question right it's not a civilization right. idly looking to get richer right. it's more like you know i mean we, we see we've seen these kinds of cascading failures in history right and this is when the huns come sweeping across europe or mongols yeah. or when the the first indo-european migrations come out into greece just before the appearance of writing right i mean there's right. some environmental failure and it drives people looking for a place to live because they're because um, they're risk starving right so it's not right. a it's not a it's not a non-ethical question in the abstract should we cooperate with people in trinity or not it's my people need a place to live right and they might die um, yeah 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 so uh yeah so that's kind of the that's kind of the background driver and he's visiting his parents with uh talitha yan right because yes. their relationship has evolved well, it evolves to the point where, I mean, he, he has, there are limits, right? And, and look, you know, thankfully, let's go to, to Bain books and give them a nod for that is, you know, they want to keep the relationships as clean as possible. And I, and I get that. Um, but I think that, that it's evolved to the point where he knows now that he relies on her almost explicitly for advice, for um I guess, comfort in some ways, but also for her insight. He respects her intellect. And, um, and even though he knows she's not a military-minded person like him, he also knows that he can rely on her for a lot of things. So Jan is younger. He's like 45. She's probably 29 or so. So it's a good balance in terms of their experience and their his her youth versus his more middle-aged approach to life, if you will. And so they work together um, pretty fluidly to the point where he's able to trust her to go off and do other thing, other things, <clears throat> take command of another ship and um, uh, sort of lead a large group of people. And he's comfortable with that 
because of the relationship he's developed with her. So yeah, they're together when they when they meet with the mom and dad and and they they kind of are together, but they kind of aren't. You know, there's there's lines they don't cross, they're not allowed to cross, and the Navy doesn't allow them to cross, so they don't. And, no. and that's the di- dynamic that goes on there. Yep. So now, I, I won't give everything away, but I will say eventually that relationship does change to what they end up both wanting to be at. So yeah. that's all. Okay. <laughs> So, um, so now, so uh, Clement's going to head this second expedition to Trinity. Right. Um, and now we've got more than one ship, right? Right. Uh, that 26 been... ships, I believe. My counting was all correct during the okay. right. Uh, equipped with this drive, right? right. Clement's the overall commander um, and has command of the Trinity still, right, also? Well, he has the, he has command of the of his gunship, but it's kind of stowed away in the much larger ship, which is the capital ship, yeah. which is the Agamemnon. So he's admiral of the fleet, but he's not really in in command of any particular ship. Yan is the commander of of the Agamemnon, and he's sort of just the he, like I said, he's the admiral of the fleet, but um, he doesn't command the ship specifically. So. So, so the, the gunship is there when he needs it, if he needs it, but it's not, uh, it's not something he's actively commanding on a day-to-day basis or anything like that. So, okay. Okay. yeah. So this fleet has adventures before they even get to Trinity, right? Yes, they do. Things go, things go wrong. What, what can go wrong when you're in hyperspace? How, what, things, uh... things always go wrong when you're in hyperspace. I mean, that's the thing. Um, what happens is they discover a secret about, well, now I won't call it a secret. They discover something about the drive. And that is that the drive, and we call it, I call it the leap drive, which was liquid energy absorption propulsion, I believe is what I, which by the way, was something I stole from uh, the job I was working at. Um, <laughs> so, you know, kudos to those people, but it was a good name. Um, it wasn't called liquid energy absorption propulsion. I made that up, but the leap drive thing was like, well, I, I like the sound of that. Anyway, um, what they discover is that is that the, the drive distorts not only space, but it can also distort time. So depending on how you key in your reactor settings and how you deal with your um, the envelope of ships that are around inside the bubble, um, that can create time discrepancies. It can, it can create problems. Um, whereas someone may think that they're right on schedule in their bubble, but they in fact are six hours, six days, who knows, six years, um, still away from their intended target. So they kind of, they kind of posited that this was possible, but they hadn't really dealt with it on a specific um, basis until they get to Trinity and the first group arrives and then the second group arrives, but the third group doesn't arrive. And then they have to um, conduct a search, which is pretty exhausting. So that's all I'll say about that. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So, um, 
So uh, book two here, we see uh, the solar, uh, the earth forces. Solar League, yeah. Solar League yeah. showing up. Uh, we, we, we got kind of a hint of that at the end of book one. Right. Um, we, we see it more now. Uh, yes. And uh, re returning with an old uh, frenemy. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. The... Um, you know, like I said, a, a lot of the, or one of the sort of recurring military techniques or, or mm -hmm. tactics or questions in book one was around Nobly's, you know, drive weapon, right? Yes, right. Can, can we operate it? Has enough time passed? If I fire again, is the ship going to crack? Right. Um, we get into different kinds of... Uh, fights here uh right because we're, we're pretty soon engaged uh fighting against the uh um, against the, the the earthlings um what what is talk to us about the action like what do space battles look like uh in the trinity book well in in the trinity books are different than a lot of what i've written before and my previous stuff it was a lot more um ships you know swing by and shooting at each other now you know you can't really do that on a, on a full time basis and any space battle is going to have to be conducted at less than light speed by a long long ways it's going to have to be conducted very very close quarters for the most part um you know and i i tried to look a lot at, at technology like cruise missiles and things like that what is their actual range effectively how would they use that in 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 space? How would I be able to translate that to kind of technology in space, things like that? So, you know, throughout the the battles, I have a variety of different um, tactics and things. There are mines, which I call scatter mines, which they sort of throw into the battlefield. Um, those mines are magnetic; they're they're drug along by a uh, by a single ship. In this case, I think it is the the uh, the Beauregard. And um, that technology plays into, I don't know if you can see that, I hope you can't. That technology plays into how the battles are carried out. And the thing about having an all, an all powerful weapon, right? That they used in the first book. And the second book is it, these ships are really close together and you can't just go around blazing the entire star system with your weapon because you might who knows what you might hit or how you might hit it or how you might destroy what you might destroy and and so you got to kind of pare that down i wanted to make the battles a little bit more personal um i still got back into clement clement using his, ta his ability tactically his ability to um break up uh, larger fleets, and he's pretty successful at that. He's pretty successful successful at, at dealing with enemy tactics because um, he still has some superior, even though he may have inferior speed, he has superior firepower. If he has, if he has inferior firepower, he may have a speed or a, or a, or a nimbleness, nimbleness sort of advantage. So um, he uses a lot of that stuff as much as he can to try to keep the battle um, basically keep the enemy forces at bay for as long as he can before he has to, he's forced to make some serious uh, decisions about how they're going to carry on the battle or, or not. So, yeah. 
it's interesting to see some of the change in dynamic, right? Like within a single ship, you as the captain have a you have issues around sort of uh, chain of command and persuasion and getting everyone on your side. And we saw that in book one. Right. Of course, you have that. It's if anything, it's a bigger issue when you're commanding a fleet of 26 ships. Right. Um, but also you have this dynamic where you send ships to do things with, you know, some of them are higher risk, right? You yes. send ships to take missions uh, where the odds are terrible. Uh, so there's this interesting, interesting dynamics around Clement as a leader um, above and beyond what we saw last time. Um, yeah, I mean, he definitely has to, to think about putting ships in harm's way. And there's a sequence in the book when they first arrive in the star system that definitely um, he has to put at least one ship, if not more, in harm's way. Um, but he's also willing to take those risks for himself, which is why he ends up... Um, and I'll give this away. It's a little spoiler in Trinity's Children. He does end up back in command of his original gunship, and um, he has to end up using it in a way. Uh, well, let's just say he has to make a bit of a sacrifice. And in, in doing that, he suffers uh, a lot um, personally, personal loss and things that happen to him um, and to people he loves. So, um, yeah, it's, it's difficult, but he's not afraid to ask people to do difficult things because he's willing to do those things himself as well. So, yeah. yeah. So, okay, we got, we got several exciting space action sequences. We also have action on the planet. Yes. Um, and, and some of it, I will say, is a little kind of cyberpunk, speaking around kind of genre, yeah. getting to some kind of yeah. cyberpunk yeah. Punk type issues. Um, and, and we meet Mary, uh, and, and we knew Mary is basically this kind of innocent, non-Earth human. Let's call her, let's call her what she is. She's a nymphat. We'll just call her a nymphat. She's a nymphat, <laughs> yes. She, yes, that is true. So, in the first one. Uh, in the first one. So, um, so things change, though. What, what do you want to tell us about what happens on the planet here in book two? Well, when they get there, when Clement gets to the planet and they start dealing with starting their colonization process um he does encounter mary again and she's a very different person than the young girl that he left uh about two years before and she has been transformed um and it is a cyberpunky kind of of, of turn if you will where um she's been enhanced or she was born enhanced and she's sort of been activated to serve a purpose. And that purpose is to run a lot of the systems around the planet itself, around the, the Trinity planets. And um, he finds his interactions with her changed completely from being, looking at her as a very slight uh, character sort of, waif-like in a lot of ways now she's very authoritative she's got a lot of knowledge she's sort of been in many ways she's been activated and because of that he has to deal with her um, on a much more um, uh, level playing field than he did uh, when he originally knew her the first time so um the cyberpunky aspects those are things that i think you know it enhanced the story they are 
I was trying to really toe the, get the line between um, stuff that was both magical and yet horrific. And I, I tried to find that, that balance. I hope I did. Um, but a lot of times the choices that the people make, um, especially Mary, the choices she has to make are as difficult or worse than any choice that Clement or anyone else has to make. So um, yeah, there's a lot of technology running around. It's uh, kind of been uh, running on automatic for a long time and they start activating it. And when they start activating it and Mary starts getting involved, um, it creates a lot of consequences, but it's also necessary to tell the story and to defend these three worlds from the rest of the galaxy. And I think, you know, one of the things I, I, I keyed on just a little bit, but haven't really, I've kind of, kind of held it back for maybe another, another adventure in this series. And that is um, that the, the race that invented, that kind of populated those worlds initially, um, they did give people, um, well, let's just say they, they sort of created worlds that would be habitable for the human form. And um, there's a lot of that in there. And how do we do that? How do we deal with it? And um, yeah, I can get into that more if I get a chance in the third book. We'll get into it more in detail. But it, it is something that's, that's kind of underlying that there is this technology, but it's not without risk. It's not without, without a, a price. And there is a price to be paid. And um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a hard choice. It's hard choices. Yeah. Hard choices, and we end up in a sort of a Star Wars-like dual ending action sequence, right? Uh, where yeah. On the one hand, there's people on the planet and finally getting inside some of these mysterious spaces and strange transformations, like you say, sort of cyberpunky, borderline horror, maybe, right? Uh, right. In terms of kind of their impact on Clement and others. Uh, but while, while the fight is still going on... Uh, between ships uh, above. So very, very exciting. What a fun, uh, big yeah. uh, action, action ending. Yeah, I, li I, I liked it. I liked the ending. I, uh, uh, well, not everybody ends up with a happy ending, but it ends up pretty good. Yeah. So um, is there anything else that you'd like to say about Trinity's children that you haven't? Is there anything you want to talk about that I haven't asked you about? Well, the only thing I can say is it definitely follows on um, from the first book, but we do see Clement and a lot of the other characters further on down the line. Um, and yes, there are some old enemies that uh, come back. And um, I think the growth through there is basically the, the fact that Clement has much greater responsibility when the story starts, which he doesn't think is going to be an issue. He thinks it's going to be kind of a cruise. You know, we're going to go on a cruise with 30,000 people. We're going to land them on this planet. and We're going to start going. And within a couple months, we'll have another 30,000 and then another and another. And he thinks it's going to be pretty easy. Um, but that's not how it turns out, of course. And, um, you know, I think, I think the main thing is that at the end, when he makes his sort of final decisions on where he wants to be, 
and what he wants to do. I think he's he's much happier with the final choices that he makes than with many of the choices he made along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, can you tell us what you're working on now? What 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 do we expect to see coming up from Dave Barra? Well, what I have right now on my desk is a uh, is a desktop. Right, if I point right here, I can all, I can touch it right there. Um, I've got a draft of a novel called Mercy that is in a completely different world. It's um, based on a science fiction telling of a story uh, that would involve. If you remember back in the COVID days a couple of years ago, there were two ships. Um, USNS Mercy and USNS, I can't remember what the name of the second one was. They're basically hospital ships. Mm -hmm. And I kind of always wanted to do a story about a hospital ship. And so in, in this, in that universe, there is the possibility, humans are really good at two things, at fighting and at healing people. So they're really good doctors and really good warriors. So, um, that story is one that it does involve aliens for the first time. And uh, we get, I get into that and I think that's really a lot of fun. Um, there's a lot going on, it's still developing, still forming in my mind. So that's kind of what I'm working on now. Um, last, earlier this year, I wrote, of course I wrote Shattered Trust. I wrote uh, the ending of this book earlier this year as well. So, you know, that's kind of what I'm looking at uh, right now, I'm also, um, I got some stuff going on in my life with, you know, with a girl I might get married to and things like that. So that's kind of exciting um, for the third time. So um, those are the kind of things I'm working on, but, but Mercy is out there. It's uh, coming. I work on it. I, I'm, I'm what I call dabbling in it right now. So dabbling involves working on it, you know, every once a week, a couple couple times a week it's not really heavy duty writing yet but the story's still growing i love the story and um i think it's going to be a good one so hopefully everything will continue to evolve as my career continues to evolve that would be great yeah well i look forward to seeing it david all right, Thanks, uh, david. All right. well once again the book is trinity's children out now from bain books and trade paperback and uh and ebook Dave Barra, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Dave Butler. And you keep going too, man. <laughs> See you soon. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. The interviews the next morning were complete washouts, with the two prospective employers clearly seeing him just out of politeness. Gritting his teeth, Johnny returned home and called up the news sheet once again. 
He lowered his sights somewhat this time, and his new list came out to be three and a half pages long. Doggedly, he began making the calls. By the time Jamie came to bring him to dinner, he had exhausted all the numbers on the list. Not even any interviews this time, he told Jamie disgustedly as they walked into the dining room where the others were waiting. News really does travel in this town, doesn't it? Come on, Johnny, there has to be someone around who doesn't care that you're an ex-cobra, Jamie said. Perhaps you should lower your standards a bit, Pierce suggested. Working as a laborer wouldn't hurt you any. Or maybe you could be a patroller, Gwen spoke up. That would be neat. Johnny shook his head. I've tried being a laborer, remember? The men on the road crew were either afraid of me or thought I was trying to show them up. But once they got to know you, things would be different, Irena said. Or maybe if they had a better idea of what you'd done for the Dominion, they'd respect you more, Pierce added. No, Dadder. Johnny had tried explaining to his father why he didn't want Cedar Lake to honor him publicly, and the elder Moro had listened and said he understood. But Johnny doubted that he really did, and Pierce clearly hadn't given up trying to change his son's mind. I probably would be a good patroller, Gwen, he added to his sister, but I think it would remind me too much of some of the things I had to do in the army. Well, then, maybe you should go back to school, Irena suggested. No, Johnny snapped with a sudden flash of anger. A stunned silence filled the room. Inhaling deeply, Johnny forced himself to calm down. Look, I know you're all trying to be helpful, and I appreciate it. But I'm twenty-four years old now and capable of handling my own problems. Abruptly, he put down his fork and stood up. I'm not hungry. I think I'll go out for a while. Minutes later, he was driving down the street, wondering what he should do. There was a brand-new pleasure center in town, he knew, but he wasn't in the mood for large groups of people. He mentally ran through a list of old friends, but that was just for practice. He knew where he really wanted to go. Jamie had suggested he call Elise Karn before dropping in on her, but Johnny was in a perverse mood. Turning at the next corner, he headed for Blakely Street. Elise seemed surprised when he announced himself over her apartment building security intercom, but she was all smiles as she opened her door. "'Johnny, it's good to see you,' she said, holding out her hand. "'Hi, Elise.' He smiled back, taking her hand and stepping into her apartment, closing the door behind him. "'I was afraid you'd forgotten about me while I was gone.' Her eyes glowed. "'Not likely,' she murmured, and suddenly she was in his arms." After a long minute, she gently pulled away. "'Why don't we sit down?' she suggested. "'We've got three years to catch up on.' "'Anything wrong?' he asked her. "'No. Why?' "'You seem a little nervous. I thought you might have a date.' She flushed. "'Not tonight. I guess you know I've been seeing Don.' "'Yes.' "'How serious is it, Elise? I deserve to know.' "'I like him,' she said, shrugging uncomfortably. I suppose in a way I was trying to insulate myself from pain in case you didn't come back. Johnny nodded, understanding. I got a lot of that on Adirondack, too, mostly from whichever civilian family I was living with at the time. Elise seemed to wince a bit. I'm sorry. Anyway, it's grown more than I expected it to, and now that you're back... Her voice trailed off. You don't have to make any decisions tonight, Johnny said after a moment, except whether or not you'll spend the evening with me. Some of the tension left her face. That one's easy. Have you eaten yet, or shall I just make us some cave? 
They talked until nearly midnight, and when Johnny finally left, he had recaptured the contentment he'd felt on first arriving at Cedar Lake. Doan Etheridge would soon fade back into the woodwork, he was sure, and with Elise and his family back in their old accustomed places, he would finally have a universe he knew how to deal with. His mind was busy with plans for the future as he let himself into the Moreau house and tiptoed to his bedroom. Johnny? A whisper came from across the room. You okay? Fine, Jamie. Just great, Johnny whispered back. How was Elise? Johnny chuckled. <laughs> Go to sleep, Jamie. That's nice. Good night, Johnny. One by one, the great plans crumbled. With agonizing regularity, employers kept turning Johnny down, and he was eventually forced into a succession of the level nine and ten manual jobs he had hoped so desperately to avoid. None of the jobs lasted very long. The resentment and fear of his fellow workers invariably generated an atmosphere of sullen animosity which Johnny found hard to take for more than a few days at a time. As his search for permanent employment faltered, so did his relationship with Elise. She remained friendly and willing to spend time with him, but there was a distance between them that hadn't existed before the war. To make matters worse, Doan refused to withdraw gracefully from the field and aggressively competed with him for Elise's time and attention. But worst of all, from Johnny's point of view, was the unexpected trouble his problems had brought upon the rest of the family. His parents and Jamie, he knew, could stand the glances, whispered comments, and mild stigma that seemed to go with being related to an ex-cobra. But it hurt him terribly to watch Gwen retreat into herself from the half-unintentional cruelty of her peers. More than once, Johnny considered leaving Horizon and returning to active service, freeing his family from the crossfire he had put them into. But to leave now would be to admit defeat, and that was something he couldn't bring himself to do. And so matters precariously stood for three months until the night of the accident. Or the murder, as some called it. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Dave Barra for sitting down with us today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>